Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, with December and holiday party season around the corner, and a lot of us a little bit out of practice after missing out on those kinds of gatherings, we get a refresher on proper party etiquette. We head to Qatar as Canada's men's team gets set to play its first World Cup match since 1986 and find out more about the mood as the host continues to come under fire for its human rights record. We hear from a Kyiv-based human rights lawyer whose organization is the co-winner of the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize about living in a capital hit by continued attacks on the country's critical infrastructure, continuing the fight against Russia, and the impact of being a Nobel laureate. But first, the public safety minister laid out the government's case today for invoking the Emergencies Act earlier this year to break up the so-called Freedom Convoy blockades at a public inquiry. Marco Mendicino said police forces were overwhelmed, but did he really lay out his case for invoking the Emergencies Act? No holiday today for the public safety minister, uh, Marco Mendicino, one of the key figures in government behind the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act at the height of the blockades in Ottawa, testified at the public inquiry into the use of the act today. Uh, Marco Mendicino told the inquiry that police were overwhelmed by the so-called Freedom Convoy. The minister says he saw the demonstration in Ottawa and at several border crossings as illegal blockades, the scope and tactics of which police had never encountered. The consequences were devastating to people, to the economy, uh, to our international relations. And so at, at all times, I was assessing um, not any one of these events in isolation, but rather the situation in its totality. In its totality is the important point there to keep in mind. Now, the inquiry had previously heard from top police officials in Ottawa that within hours of the convoy's arrival, officers felt they were dealing with an occupation. Uh, Mendicino uh, also talked about the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act and said the government had considered engaging with organizers of the Freedom Convoy, but ultimately decided not to. Uh, he also says they were searching for ways to bring an end to the blockades, which overwhelmed police. A lot of the concerns around the cohesive structure of the blockade and the occupation um, raised legitimate concerns about whether or not, even if um, a negotiated settlement uh, had been reached, whether or not it would have been successful in disengaging and clearing the blockade and the occupation. Marco Mendicino there. This has been a really interesting few days. It will continue to be interesting this week as we hear from uh, the head of, we heard from the head of CSIS. We're also going to hear from many cabinet ministers, including Mendicino, the prime minister's up later in the week. Joining us now with more on this is Michael Kempa. He's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. He's been paying very close attention, well, both to the uh, so-called Freedom Convoy back in the winter, as well as the inquiry. Thanks so much for your time. Welcome back. Okay, thank you. We got a bit of a some insight into the cabinet's thinking around this today, and it's this sort of idea of an expanded view of what a threat is to some extent, and that's both mm. the threat and the capacity to respond to it, I guess. That's true. I have to say, I feel that the government is just not doing a great job of explaining its own position. I know that the timelines are very tight at this commission and they're trying to get as much information out as they can. They're not doing a good job of drawing a line or a distinction between explaining why they did what they did and then talking about what needs to be reformed moving forward. So specifically, when we're talking about why did they mobilize the Emergencies Act and this famous stuff now about what about Section 2 of the CSIS Act 
and the head of CISA saying that this did not meet that standard from CISA's perspective. And the government just hasn't done a good job of explaining this. It's actually quite simple. The Emergencies Act says the government must follow the same issues that are listed in Section 2 of the CSIS Act. So all of the same types of threats, organized political movement, violence, so forth, foreign state sponsorship of things that are intended to undermine Canadian stability and so forth. But the critical difference is the bar is lower for the government than it is for CSIS. It's not that you add any other broader definitions to explain what you've already done. It's that the bar is lower and there's a good reason for that. And David Vigneault, the head of CSIS, hit the nail on the head when he said, if the bar was exactly the same, that would effectively make CSIS the decider of when you would mobilize, yeah. if ever. And that's completely unacceptable in a democracy. And it's not at all the intention of either the CSIS Act or the Emergencies Act. So I do wish the government would explain that more clearly and then say, oh, by the way, we also, as a separate issue, need to update our list of threats to security. But that's not why we did this to begin with. We didn't change the law on the fly. Yeah, because one gets the sense that a lot of this feels like um, answering political critics to some extent, justifying the use of it instead of explaining the rationale for it. Because as you point out, uh, the definition within the CSIS Act is quite is quite limited to some extent. And the federal government does have a broader uh, ability to, to broaden that depending on what it sees as the circumstances, right? But it needs to explain that. And you're saying you don't feel that, like they're doing a particularly good job, at least not so far. No, they're not making it clear. Essentially, it reads, or when people listen, it sounds like the government moved the goalposts and it's yeah. sort of trying to justify that. Now, they in fact didn't move the goalposts. What they did was a strict reading of the CSIS Act and the Emergencies Act, as David Vigneault sort of made that point in a roundabout way. He wasn't as clear as he could have been either. Um, but when they talk about now the need for reform to the Act, that's fine, but then make it clear. We're talking about this is where we go from here. This is not why we did what we did. We didn't move the goalposts eight months ago when we invoked the Emergencies Act. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you again have reiterated in an op-ed that you felt that it was uh, legal but regret, a regrettable necessity. And I, I guess you're still there too, but but listening to the government try to defend itself has been uh, has been interesting because clearly Mendicino would be one of those best place to explain the rationale as you describe it. Yes, but he's also got a lot of other things to try to explain and justify. So, I mean, it's easy for me. My whole thing is about accountability legislation around who does what in terms of CSIS, RCMP, the federal government. I mean, this is exactly my Balowick, but he had a yeah. lot of other things to explain in his short period of time up there. Um, he talked a lot about conflict between the federal government and the provincial solicitor general in Ontario. This is very important. It's very clear that the province of Ontario simply did not do enough um, over the course of this particular emergency. Now, we've had some evidence that they felt that it was basically a federal problem because we were talking about an Ottawa issue and Ottawa mandates. But even if you feel that politically it's an Ottawa federal problem, jurisdictionally, like on paper, that's just not the way that the responsibility for this thing fell down. 
the federal, the provincial government should have done much more, and I'm quite sure that will be a major conclusion of the Rouleau Commission. Yeah. We got a bit of an insight today, too, into some of the communication between uh, Jason Kenney's office, the, uh, the, the former premier of Alberta at this point, uh, with Omar Al-Gabra, the transportation minister. There seemed to be a lot of confusion, not necessarily confusion, but there seemed to be a lot of back and forth between the provinces and Ottawa trying to figure out who exactly was going to move. And it led to a kind of a the kind of paralysis that I think we all witnessed over many weeks and the consternation that we saw of, as to why no one was moving to clear this up. We were simply, I mean, it sounds trite, but we were out of practice. I mean, this emergency yeah. legislation comes back to 1988. We've never used it. We've had, for the most part, peaceable protests in this country. And where there's been problems, the protests have been smaller. This was the first huge and troublesome protest. We were not quick enough to separate honorable protesters because they have an absolute right. You can come and yell and scream about COVID-19 mandates until you're blue in the face, if that's your interest, that's your your charter right in this mm-hmm. in this country. But mixed in with that crowd, and as time passed, larger and larger groups of troublesome factions were on the ground. We were not experienced enough, or we had forgotten in a sense, how to manage a crowd to separate the honorable protesters from those who had bad intentions. And you know, Justice Rulo has made great hints as to where he's going with this, Because he keeps saying, if you notice, he asks questions, he says, well, okay, the government created red zones where protest was not allowed to sort of break it up. Mm -hmm. Did they give any alternatives for where people could have gone to carry on with their peaceful protest somewhere else? In other words, if you create red zones, do do you then create any green zones where people can go to carry on with the legal protest? And the answer time and again has been no. So this was also an error. You know, the confines of the CSIS Act, the same words based on, on legal interpretation, jurisprudence, federal court rulings, and so on, there was a very clear understanding of what those words meant in the confines of the CSIS Act. And what I, uh, I was reassured by is that there was, you know, in the context of the Emergencies Act, there was to be a separate interpretation based on the confines of that, that act. Now, that's not the easiest uh... Uh, explanation to follow, but that's CSIS Director David Vigneault uh, yesterday testifying, and you were mentioning this testimony earlier. Uh, Michael Kempa's with us. He's an Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, that was pretty key testimony because I guess what it boiled down to is the CSIS Director said, okay, uh, we recommend that you can go ahead with this despite the fact that the convoy protests don't really meet our agency's strict definition of a threat to Canadian security. Well, that's exactly right. And the bar is set much higher for CSIS for a very good reason. Back in the 1970s and early 1980s, the RCMP used to be in charge of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And they got involved in all kinds of trouble for essentially doing domestic political espionage on our own citizens. They were checking into anybody they felt like, whether it was people on the left of the political spectrum, but I don't even mean the radical left. I mean, you know, basic, easygoing socialists. They yeah, were looking union into folks, people. They, yeah. All of that. Yeah. They were looking into uh, people who were who were homosexual, anything. And there was the McDonald Commission that said this is completely unacceptable. We are taking the intelligence function away from the RCMP and vesting it in a new agency called CSIS. And it actually would be quite difficult for CSIS to start looking into groups of people. And they need to meet these very specific high bar criteria 
before we start running around and spying on our own citizens. In other words, people have to be a legitimate threat, not just a nuisance for the state to keep tabs on them. Now, the federal government, in invoking the Emergencies Act, in the end, that is a very politically weighted decision. They're elected, and they are responsible for that decision. Therefore, the bar can be a little bit lower, because if they make a bad decision, they're going to own it and have to answer to the electorate. If you made the bar exactly the same, in effect, you would be putting CFIS essentially in charge of whenever the EA could be invocated, because if they say the bar is not met, then the government wouldn't be able to go in a different direction. The bar has to be a little bit different, even if you focus on the letter of the same issues that's in Section 2 of the CSIS Act. What would you like to hear from the Prime Minister? He is going to wrap this up um, near the end of the week. Uh, there's still a lot of questions to be answered about some of the measures that were taken. I know there's a lot of anger for those who opposed the invocation. It feels like we're not going to get a definitive sort of black and white answer from Justice Rouleau when this is all said and done. Uh, this will be a pretty tough moment for the Prime Minister. He has some explaining to do. There is explaining to do. He's got to basically tell us why did they use the specific powers that they did in the giant folder that is basically the Emergencies Act. So, okay. We understand compelling tow trucks. That's not very controversial. We have some sense that, okay, there was a need to break up protests, so there were a few red zones. I'd like to know why there were no green zones created so that people who had just a point to make who weren't here to spread all kinds of radical far-right ideology or anti-immigration messages um, simply wouldn't have joined them in those protests. But then when we start getting into the freezing of the bank accounts, yeah. What evidence did we have that that was a good idea? Now, I know the intention was if you threaten to freeze the bank accounts, hopefully a bunch of people will leave the protest. So when you thin out the crowd, there's less for the police to deal with. Is there evidence from around the world that it actually works that way? Because I haven't seen it. Um, so I'm not sure that that was the best thing to add to the folder. It seems pretty impactful on people's lives. But then the government has said, well, you were warned. So if you had left, you would not have had your accounts frozen. So if people accept that logic, then that's okay, because a big part of this is also what the public will tolerate when they hear the information. It's not just what the judge says. It's what Canadians say at the end of this. Michael Kempa, as always, thank you so much for your insight on this tonight. Thank you kindly. I want people to cut loose. I want people making out in closets. <laughs> I want people hanging from the ceilings, lampshades on the heads. I want it to be a Playboy Mansion party. And also, I want you to know and spread the word that I will have my digital camera and I'll be taking pictures all along the way. And the best and craziest thing that happens will be on the cover of the newsletter. Incentive. Steve Carroll in the U.S. version of The Office talking about the Christmas party that you wouldn't want to go to, right? The Christmas party you'd never want to set foot in. It's not always the case. I've avoided some. I've gone to many. I kind of like holiday parties. They can be fun. They can be. They're not always fun. Well, it's nearly December, believe it or not. We're only eight days away, more or less, from December. Can you believe that? Um, and all those office parties, those celebratory holiday office parties are just around the corner. Now, for a lot of us, it's been a while, right? 
I mean, I remember we tried to do hybrid ones. The Zoom holiday party was was you know when everyone had their little had their little meal in front. Of, it, that those were odd. Those were odd. The idea was great, but those virtual holiday parties were not not successful. Um, so I imagine people are relatively excited to get back together. Those who enjoy them are relatively excited about getting back together again this year, having that office holiday party, so to speak. Um, but we're out of practice. In fact, for some people, if you think about it, so many people have changed jobs over the past few years that it's highly possible you'll be at a party with people you've never met, even though you know them, you've met them online, but you've never met in person. That happened a while back to me. Um, it is odd. So I figured, well, we must all be out of practice for holiday parties. We must all need a bit of a refresher. Some of the stuff may seem pretty obvious, but it's never bad to brush up on some of the basics of how to handle a holiday office party or any holiday party for that matter, but specifically an office party, because those can be a bit of a minefield if you don't watch out. And to help us do that, uh, from Austin, Texas, is Sharon Schweitzer. She's a cultural and etiquette consultant. She's founder of Access to Culture, a business consultancy, and she's author of a book called Access to Asia. Sharon Schweitzer, thank you so much for your time and your advice tonight. It's my pleasure. I am happy to be here with you, Ben, and you and the listeners. Yeah. Tell me a bit about this year, because it feels like suddenly the invites are coming back. We're getting ready to be, I, I gather some have had a little bit of practice of this more recently, but it feels like a long time since we've all had to attend a holiday party in person. I agree. I agree. They The invitations are flying in and people are very excited to get together. I think they're trying to make up for lost time during uh, the past year or two when we have had to do those either virtually or just skip them all together. So there are some ideas and some things that we can kind of incorporate to help make it a little smoother because let's face it, some of these people we've met virtually, we may be now meeting for the first time in person face to face. Yeah, at any time you go into a social, I mean, I think just like everything, um, as the you know, as the height of the pandemic has waned, all those social situations have become a little bit more challenging than we remembered because there is a sort of an instinct to these things, and then you, you're out of practice, right? That's right, you're out of practice. You may have, you know, not had to consider the fact that oh, does this person want to shake hands? Maybe they don't want to shake hands. Normally, this person will give me a hug. I don't want them to hug me or kiss me. So, you know, there's a lot of variables that are going to come into play, and it's going to be very personal and customized to each individual. You have some advice. Uh, this is advice that applies broadly, but it certainly applies to holiday parties. And it kind of starts at the beginning, which is RSVP promptly. It's always a good, it's always good manners to, to respond sooner than later. That's right, because the hosts are planning and the event planners, they're trying to get together the catering, all the information, the decor. And to do that, it takes a lot of pre-planning and a lot of effort. So you want to let them know right away whether you're going to be able to attend or not so that they can get those wheels in motion. It's just the polite thing to do. Yeah. And, and then, of course, there's the obvious ones. You know, when you get there, don't show There is no such thing as fashionably late at a, at a holiday party, right? I mean, people are watching. It's sort of like a work event. You have to watch out. Well, you know, that's the thing. Sometimes you have several different parties to go to. So what you want to do is gauge your time, make a decision. Which parties do I really want to go to? I don't want to be rushed. 
there's going to be traffic involved. So kind of gauge, what do I really need to do? And can I go by this party and stay at least an hour before I depart? It's really important to do that. And if it's a work party, you know, the experts are divided on this, Ben. Your listeners are going to want to know that some culture and etiquette experts say that if you don't want to go to the work party, you don't have to. However, as a labor and employment attorney who doesn't practice anymore, but who did for many, many years, I can tell you that the leadership is watching and they observe and they know who comes to the party and who doesn't. So while you may not have to go and people don't think, well, it's really not mandatory that I go to the party, it's probably a really good idea to go to the party, even if it's just for an hour and not arrive fashionably late and not look bored, like you're just waiting to dash for the door. Waiting to get out. What an interesting perspective you'd have on this then. Mingling is something that you that you uh, you can't just show up and say, you know, where's the bar, where's the food? Um, if you're going to go to your company's holiday party, it's best to go shake a few, or well, I suppose you might not want to shake a few ads. It's best to go mingle. It is because everyone watches the entrance to a room. So when you arrive, kind of resist the urge to head straight for the bar or straight for the buffet, kind of enter the room, pause, step to the right, greet whoever's standing there. And one of the things I've done then is I've asked people, do you mind if we shake hands or are you comfortable shaking hands? And some people will say, well, I'm a hugger. And then you can decide if you want to say, well, you know, I'm not ready to hug yet, but I'm happy to fist bump or elbow or whatever it is you're comfortable doing. But if you do want to mingle, um, you know, executives and leaders, they enjoy speaking with employees in the workforce. And this could be a really rare opportunity for you to introduce yourself and interact with the higher level folks in person. So you want to be visible to leadership. Um, the other thing people need to keep in mind at these work-related events is you want to greet your colleagues warmly, okay? Yes. You want to chat with them and introduce yourself to people that you really don't know. Kind of avoid hanging with your cubicle click. If you've got a set group that you hang with every day, kind of branch out a little bit at the party. Yeah, it makes sense, uh, especially these days, because as you mentioned earlier, and we were talking about this, these are potentially either people you've never met people you haven't seen in a long time. Um, you know, you, you are in some ways making a first impression, even though in the past, these are people you would have seen a lot of. Uh, even in the hallway, you would have noticed, you would have recognized people. Now you might be meeting even your cubicle mates for the first time in person. That's right. That's right. You may be. So you want to greet people. And when you see the event planners and hosts, you want to thank them for hosting the event, chat with them for a few minutes, you know, give them some kind of compliment on the party, maybe the invitation, the catering, and then move on. Um, you know, if you're with a colleague, maybe you want to visit 10, 15 minutes and then move on to someone else. That way you don't monopolize anyone's time. But you're so right. You definitely want to spend time with those folks that you maybe haven't met yet. Yeah. I mean, the the oldest advice for holiday parties is don't drink too much. And I guess that's even more so now that we are coming out of a, you know, may have been a few years since we've been at these things. We're out of practice. We mightn't have been in a situation where we've been, you know, where you have a bit too much. That's right. You want to avoid overindulging in alcohol because it, it is a common mistake. And 
you know, alcohol and the loose tongue, boy, those can add up to a regretful Monday morning. And you don't want to be the fodder for the, you know, infamous parties and, and become a legend. So consider tea, club soda, water, or just alternate your alcoholic drink with another glass of water. Just, you know, be, be responsible in, when it comes to alcohol. Yeah, it's funny. I was reading a stat um, recently where even people who who admit to having had too much to drink at an office party frown at others drinking too much at an office party. I have no doubt that has got to be true. That it really does. I think. And once you start, you know, overindulging a little bit in the alcohol, then you start getting loose lips, and you start talking and saying things you probably shouldn't. Um, and so. You know, it's it's better to stick to conversation topics like pets, travel, sports, you know, best-selling books. Sometimes when we have too much alcohol, we start talking about other taboo topics or we get bogged down in a work discussion. And that just is the last thing somebody wants to talk about at a holiday party. Yeah, you really want to watch out. I mean, I guess therein lies the the rub after these years. The, the thing about those virtual parties is that if you, you could kind of tune in and out if you wanted to but when you're back in person you know these are office holiday parties can either be a lot of fun they can also be a lot of pressure that's right they can be a lot of pressure because you're there to celebrate the year's success and make no mistake even though it may be a luncheon or it may be uh you know a cocktail hour or a dinner even though it's after hours or on off time it is still a professional work-related event and so your behavior there is going to be counted at, toward, you know, you don't want it to ding off your professionalism and what you've worked so hard to accomplish. Yeah. And in terms of your graceful exit, I always think that's that's a good thing to know, too. There's always a, a time when you know it's time to go. And how do you do that gracefully without without calling, cause, calling too much attention to yourself? One of the best ways you can do that is to say good night or goodbye to the host and the, the event planners and thank them for hosting the party or the event. A good time to depart is if there's a toast or a small presentation or speech, wait until that's finished. Um, a lot of people will wait until that point in time and then depart or maybe send an email or a handwritten note the next day thanking the host. But what you want to do is make sure that you're not departing before there's some kind of an announcement that's going to be made. So if you can find out about that, do a little due diligence. That always helps. I guess I guess it's knowing what the plan for the night is, knowing what the schedule is to some extent, what time things are happening. That's right. That's right. When, you know, is there a, a cocktail? Is there a past hors d'oeuvres? You know, kind of what's, what's going to happen? Is anyone going to make comments or is it going to be just a you know, meet and greet, come and go. It's always nice to know the format. Hopefully your invitation will let you know that. Yeah, you don't want to be the one who stumbles in right in the middle of the CEO's speech, right? That's the, uh, uh, yeah. Um, are you looking forward to your own? Do you have holiday party plans for this year? We do. We are a very small office, but we are going to get together and do a lunch because we have folks here in the office who have family obligations, and it's just really easier for them to do a lunch and then get home to the family in the evenings. So that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to do a nice uh, holiday lunch the first week of December and 
talk about how wonderful Thanksgiving was. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Your Thanksgiving is coming up. Ours is back in October, so we go quite a ways between turkey dinners. That's uh, that's a bit different here. But I guess that's the last thing, is that the party itself should also be, depending whether it's a little office or a big office, you hope that the party is a reflection of the people that are there. So you're not having sort of a blowout Saturday night party if that's not what most staff need or want. They would rather just have a nice lunch together. That's right. Many employers and many organizations are now customizing their holiday events so that they can take into consideration driving, you know, child care, uh, timing for employees, traffic. And so they'll find out, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to just have, you know, a holiday meal there on the work site? Do you want to go to a restaurant? Do you want us to have a special care of people like, you know, there are different ways they can customize depending on your organizational culture. Well, Sharon Schweitzer, I wish you a happy Thanksgiving and a happy holidays. Thanks so much for your advice. Well, thank you, Ben. I wish you and all your listeners a wonderful holiday season. The Canadian men are about to play in their first World Cup game since 1986. It goes back a very long way. You'll remember perhaps on Friday we spoke with George Pecos, who was a member of that 1986 Team Canada uh, squad that played in Mexico. They lost all three of their matches. They didn't score. So there's lots to there are a lot of firsts that could be achieved this time around. In fact, we expect this team might achieve some of those firsts as early as tomorrow, today already in Doha. It's already 8 a.m. Wednesday in Qatar. And uh, Team Canada plays. They play at 10 o'clock tonight, local time, at the uh, Ahmed Bin Ali Stadium. Um, the good news is they're playing. Alfonso Davies, one of this team's stars, is playing. The tough part is they're playing against Belgium, ranked second in the world. So it's a, it's a it's going to be a tough introduction to the game. Uh, meanwhile, there's been a lot happening off the field, as you've probably heard in Qatar. Lots of criticism of the human rights record there, uh, criminalization of homosexuality in the country, um, the fact that there's been a beer ban that came in at the last minute for some of the stadiums there, the treatment of the many mil- thousands of migrant workers who helped build the massive infrastructure that went in to hosting this World Cup, and corruption claims around its successful effort to land the game. So it's been a bit of a uh, difficult time in the spotlight for Qatar. Today, for the first time, though, um, or not quite the first time, but today there was news on the field as well um, that we'll get to in just a sec. But Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, has been there. He watched the U.S. and Wales yesterday draw 1-1. And he reiterated this idea that if Qatar is going to be welcome to all people, uh, you know, emphasis on the all, then he said to his Qatari counterpart that it is time to put those words into action. The Emir's statement that all are welcome here for the World Cup is an important message for an event that brings together people from all walks of life, nations, faiths, sexual orientations, races, and other forms of diversity. Now it's important to make that inclusivity a reality. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Qatar for the World Cup. Canadian members of Parliament today passed a unanimous motion condemning FIFA's decision to threaten on-field punishment of players in the World Cup wear armbands supportive of the LGBTQ community. Um, Let's head to Qatar now because there's so much going on. And of course, Team Canada plays today. James Griffiths is the Asia correspondent for the Globe and Mail who is in Qatar. He's the World Cup correspondent this month. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Well, eight o'clock in the morning. Um, it's Qatar. It's the World Cup. It's November. 
Uh, so many things seem so different about the tournament this time <laughs> around. What's it like? What's it like to be there? Uh, it, it is definitely strange. Um, I mean, you wouldn't know it's November, especially for those of us kind of from further north of the equator. It's 30 degrees uh, Celsius during most of the day. It's it's pretty comfortable at night, but, it, you know, it, it doesn't feel like winter. And certainly it's not a winter compared to much of Canada. Um but you know there is there is the first couple of days were a bit strange when we were waiting for fans to arrive. But there is definitely a World Cup feel now. You you see, you know, hundreds and hundreds of fans on the streets and and in, in the metro and stuff wearing all their team shirts. And there is a much more of a kind of international vibe now. But but there's still definitely you know some unique uh, facets to being in Qatar that make it a lot more strange. Yeah, such as. Well, one of the things is when whenever you talk to people and interview fans, there's a kind of underneath the enthusiasm. And yeah, people are, you know, people are genuinely happy about Qatar and there are a lot of people impressed by the infrastructure and, and, and you know, everything's very shiny and it's very efficient here. But you ask a couple of questions and people kind of reveal that there is a level of discomfort I think with being here for a lot of them um I like Anthony Blinken I was at the Wales game on on um on Monday night and I talked to a lot of Welsh fans and and we've had an even longer wait than Canada has it's been 64 years for us um and I (laughs) and I spoke to a lot of people who kind of said look if 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 we were English fans if we were fans for a country that you know, had a chance of being in a world in the next World Cup, or was in a, in World Cups more often. We probably wouldn't have come because we see we feel so uncomfortable being in Qatar and giving a kind of tacit approval to to this this country, given all the problems that you listed off at the introduction. So, so there is that kind of that political element is really affecting people's mood here, even even though they come to watch the sport. Yeah, and it's 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 you know so often what happens, and I'm thinking back to the Winter Games in Sochi, the Winter Olympics, or the World Cup in in Russia in 2018, that when the games begin, when the sport begins, and even the Winter Olympics in China, which you covered, I believe, just now, um, that when the sport begins, the talk about the politics tends to drift away a little bit. Um, but it feels like here, it's there's been a sustained campaign to keep it in the, in the public eye, and and it's been interesting to watch from afar. Yeah, I mean, FIFA president Gianni Infantino was was kind of openly hoping, if not predicting, that that would happen um, at his bizarre press conference he gave over the weekend. Um, you know, I, I think if we're honest, I think by the end of the tournament, by the time we get to finals, then yes, football absolutely will be that will be the primary focus. But but it is notable how how much this kind of political conversation is staying in the air. Even even as the original game start, you know, maybe if we get a couple more upsets, you know, obviously we had had Saudi um, yesterday. Um, if if there's another kind of similar huge upset that grabs headlines for a few days, that we might start to see it start to fade. But you know, it's I think the difference here compared to other places is, is exactly what I was saying: is that kind of discomfort that fans even feel that that you know it's not just human rights groups and politicians. Uh, kind of expressing these these things, fans feel it themselves, and and it's kind of palpable, I think, for people in a way that it maybe hasn't been at previous tournaments. Yeah, I mean, I've spent time in Dubai. I mean, it, it's there. You know, being in the Gulf is a different kind of experience, even as a tourist. You know, you don't. There's not a lot of interaction between with you and the people who live there. Generally, uh, there's a lot of expats. Um, 
what's it been like? Have you, have you managed to speak to any Qataris about what they think about having the spotlight shone on them and hosting this event, this massive world event? Uh, no, <laughs> to be honest, yeah. it's been quite difficult to speak to um, ordinary Qataris. You, you yeah. see them at games, but people don't always want to speak. Um, you don't tend to see too many um, walking around or out on the streets. Um, this is a very Doha is a you know is a city that loves its cars. So most yes. Qataris are driving to the games, and there are these huge, unbelievably huge parking lots outside of every stadium. Um, which can often make it quite a schlep to get from the stadium to the metro because the parking lot's in the way. Um, but but yeah, so you don't you know but you know and and it's and it's been interesting. I, you know, I think we there was a lot of fans, local fans, at the opening match, the Qatar match, um, and there were you know huge cheers for the opening ceremony, cheers for the, the Emir when he came on screen. Um, but we have seen kind of considerably smaller numbers attending matches since then. Um, you know, there are notable empty seats, which seem to be from local fans, judging judging by who's kind of not represented in the stadium. Um, and, and I think some of that is is to do with, I don't know, logistical things that people, you know, tra- don't want to go through the, the, the traffic queues. Some of it is these 10 p.m. starts are pretty painful for um, locals. You know, I didn't get back until, didn't get back to my hotel until 2 a.m. after the Wales game. So, well, you know, some of that is definitely definitely a, a factor. But, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, one of the criticisms going into this was, you know, how much was Qatar really a footballing nation? You know, what was there kind of the enthusiasm and the local support for to host such a an international event considering where it normally is held? Yeah. I mean from afar, and I hope this this doesn't isn't the wrong word, but it felt like a sterile event from afar. <laughs> Yeah, and there definitely is a sense of that. I mean, it's they've the Qatar has put on a lot of stuff. You know, there there are these the the stadiums are genuinely very very impressive, and that that you know they're some of the nicest stadiums I think I've ever been in. Um, and there are these fan festivals. There are these various kind of um, entertainment events. There's there's some stuff down in the souk, but it's it's all quite contained in various spots around the city with very, with kind of large zones where nothing is happening in between. And, and Doha is quite a strange city because it's so hot here during the day, you know, even in winter, you don't really see people walking around. So it, that kind of increases that feeling of sterility for a lot of the city. Um, and, you know, and also it's just, it's a very, very, very new city, right? Even even the bits that pretend to be old, like the, the souk were, were built in the 2000s. So it's, it, it, yeah, all of that kind of contributes to make it feel like quite a weird environment to be walking around in. We have to thank James Griffiths for getting up at 8 o'clock in the morning when he's going to be up very late tonight. It's 8 o'clock in the morning, a little bit past 8, 8.15 in Doha in Qatar. He's there for the Globe and Mail covering the World Cup. Canada plays late tonight, 10 p.m. local time against a very good Belgian team. I guess you have to put your you have to wear a couple of hats at this at this tournament, right? You're both sort of the uh the, poly, the sort of current affairs reporter, but you're also a sports reporter to some extent, I'd imagine. Uh yeah, well I'll be filing color from tonight's event and you know talking to Canadian fans and, and seeing what the vibe is and you know hopefully you know Wales got a point out of our first uh, appearance in 64 years. Hopefully Canada can get at least a point out of theirs as well.
That's right. You had the late Gareth Bale penalty, which is always, um, which is always. I mean, you know, Wales has its talisman, Gareth Bale. We have, you know, Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David, some good players. Uh, have you have you met any Canadians there yet? Is there a sense of excitement about what lies ahead? Yeah, I've met a few Canadians um, who flew in. I mean, uh, Canadians, especially the the ones that kind of enjoying the weather more than anyone else, are very conscious yeah, of, of how cold it is at home for a lot, a lot of the country, um, especially if you're from the east coast. Um, and yeah, and people, you know, people are pumped to be here. I think people are, you know, enjoying the novelty of of having their own team to support in the World Cup. You know, everyone kind of mentions, oh, I normally follow you know, France or I normally follow, you know, England or whoever. And, you know, I think people are enjoying actually I get to, you know, I get to follow Canada this time. Yeah, the um what I what I was thinking about they were apparently they were late today for their uh for their press conference, the first press conference. They were the only team that were late that made news in places. Yeah, I mean maybe not <laughs> maybe not the best omen. My, uh, I think <laughs> Our understanding is that it was uh, some something to do with traffic, but uh, you know, was was not not really it was something out of their hands. But uh, yeah, well, we'll see. You know, maybe maybe that will omen a, a late goal for them or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, what's interesting about about this schedule is that we're in a pretty tough. Canada's in a pretty tough group. And uh, speaking to a member of the 1986 team, you know, the World Cup can come and go pretty quickly if you don't make it into the next round, right? Right, yeah. I mean, it's basically what it's 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 a week week or so that you you suddenly you play three games in quick succession and yeah, you you fail to pick up the points, then then you're done. You're back on the plane home. So yeah, yeah. it could be a uh, could be faster than people realize. Although I think everyone's taking a bit of uh, heart in the fact. I mean, it was it was a shocking uh, defeat for Argentina today, but wow, that was. I mean. Talk about an upset! Saudi Arabia <laughs> beating Argentina two to one, and I gather because Saudi, you know, neighbor, neighboring team, a fellow, um, you know, from the same uh, Asian football conference, uh, there was a lot of support for Saudi Arabia today too, as they pulled off what was a remarkable upset. Yeah, I, th- I think that was probably going to have been one of the best atmospheres in the tournament because the Argentinians have a huge traveling support, but that you know was naturally d- dwarfed by the size of the Saudi crowd because you know most of them can can just drive across the border, um, or, or uh, you know some some will be staying here in, in Doha, but, and you know huge amount of Saudi fans who who you know never expected to, to see that victory, so we're even more excited, and you know I think that. That upset will definitely have, you know, maybe boosted some other teams who, you know, didn't dream of beating the, the people they're they're up against, and you know, maybe will have improved things for Canada Canada's mood as well. Yeah, it's a national holiday in Saudi Arabia today. I was reading. I guess playing these games late at night, playing them in December, the fact that this is in the middle of what is the competitive season in Europe. Um, there are a lot of things about this tournament that are different, and you get the sense that we could see some surprises because of it. Yeah, potentially. I mean, especially for some of these teams have not had the usual amount of time, you know, playing together that they would for a for a summer World Cup, a traditional World Cup that, you know, they're not maybe as, as gelled as they would be traditionally. Um, that maybe gives an advantage to smaller sides that, that you know, don't have uh, club or, or national uh, commitments that they can kind of train together in, in camps beforehand. So, you know, we yeah, we could see you know, maybe teams looking less coordinated and giving giving opportunities to some of their rivals. And, and yeah, that could, you know, could throw it open. It could, it could. A, a Wales-Canada final, you never know. <laughs> if, you put, if you put a fiver on that, you'd be, I imagine you'd be a very rich person by the time this was all said and done. So, so what will you be looking for? I mean, in terms of the first match, it's tonight at 10 p.m. I guess that's going to be a late night for you, but you're going to go there and, 
check out and see what the what what uh, what the traveling fans are like. I imagine the Belgian contingent will probably be bigger than the Canadian, much bigger than the Canadian contingent. Uh, yeah, you think so? I mean, it'd be interesting to see. I, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if if you know Canadians are are feeling a bit like Wales fans in that you know World Cup doesn't obviously does not come around very often with these countries. True. You've got to take 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 the chance when you've got it. Um, so I could, I could imagine that quite a few Canadians will have come, and and you know I think it should be a good support tonight, and we'll you know be speaking to people about how they feel and you know what what they expect, you know if if there is that kind of same level of discomfort as there was for some of the Wales fans about about being here, even though they're you know keen to support the team and keen to kind of you know show the flag, um, you know a lot of people wish they weren't necessarily doing that in in Qatar. Right, and no beer in the stadiums. How's that played out? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, everyone that I've spoken to, you know, most of the fans, they were, people were pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty equanimous about it because, but mainly because I think everyone that came to Qatar had come in with the expectation that it was going to be really hard to get beer anyway. Right. So that, that added hurdle was just kind of, oh yeah, fine. Like, we, you know, we've kind of accepted this. I did meet some American fans ahead of the, the Wales game who were kind of asking people like, you know, is there anywhere we can, is there a, beer, a bar anywhere near here? And we were like, uh, not really. No. Um, and, and you yeah. know, what alcohol is available even in fan zones is, is incredibly expensive. It's like 18 Canadian dollars or something for, for a Budweiser. So it's, you know, it's 18. even the places you can drink. Yeah, it's, it's, 50, yeah. it's 50 reals. So, yeah. yeah, not to mention it's incredibly hot right? and humid too. So it's not, ex- yeah. Uh, James, uh, stay warm um, or stay cool, I should say. And uh, good luck tonight. <laughs> we'll be uh, looking for your reports. Thanks a lot. Well, it's not often on any show you get to um, welcome someone who is the director of an organization that is the recipient of a Nobel Peace Prize. But our next guest is just that. We have one with us tonight. A reminder of the Nobel Peace Prize winners for 2022. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2022 to one individual and two organizations. Human rights advocate Alice Bialyatsky from Belarus. The Russian human rights organization Memorial and the Ukrainian Human Rights Organization Center for Civil Liberties. That last one, as mentioned last month, the Nobel uh, Committee awarded the 2022 prize to one individual and two organizations. That last one, the Center for Civil Liberties, is based in Kyiv. All three of those organizations, well, the individual and both organizations, represent civil society in their home countries. Now, we had spoken to the center's director, uh, Alexander Matvyachuk, on this show before. In the early days of the invasion, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we spoke to her. We spoke to her after the liberation of Bucha about uh, the horrors that were witnessed there uh, and how her organization was trying to document those horrors to try to make sure the evidence was kept for any future trial. And uh, it took a while to catch up with her again because she's been very busy since this Nobel Peace Prize was uh, was awarded. Uh, but they continue to do their work on documenting uh, human rights violations by Russia, all the way back to the early to the annexation of Crimea in 2014, and again all the way through to now, following the invasion. Uh, 
Uh, it is work that our team continues to carry out with hope that the Peace Prize will only help amplify their efforts. And it comes as Russia continues to target civilian and civilian civilians and civilian infrastructure inside Ukraine, including in the capital, Kiev, where uh, Alexandra Matvichuk continues to do her work. Um, and that's where we caught up with her earlier today, as always, um, as the lights had just gone out, because that happens apparently all the time in Kiev now. Uh, so joining me is Alexandra Matvichuk, Ukrainian human rights lawyer, founder and chair of the Center for Civil Liberties, which shared in the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome back. Nice to meet you. Alexandra, tell me just about life in Kyiv right now. I know as we speak, the lights are out. Um, what's it been like the past while, just trying to live there, trying to do your work there? It's a very strange time when you live in total uncertainty. And you can plan not even your day, but your next several hours. After uh, Russian shelling on critical civil infrastructure, we have problems with light, with water, with heating, with electricity. And because of the burden uh, of uh, an energy system, the light uh, very often are cut off. And now, I five minutes uh, before our conversation started, the light disappeared. <laughs> and it was also unpredictable. I'm lucky that I have mobile internet now working, but it's not always the case. How about just for everyone in your organization, and, and it must be tough for them, for their families, um, it's cold, it's like Canada, right? The weather's getting cold now, we're in November? Yes, it's cold, and I have had no heating in my home. Uh, only yesterday, this was repairing. But as we as Ukrainians told, okay, we can be with light, we can be with electricity, we can be with water, but we want to be without Russia. Yes. And if it's our price, we will pay it because it's temporary. And we all understand for what we are fighting for. And even these terroristic attacks which Russia impose against civilians don't push us to surrender. We will never surrender. Because this is very much part of your work. We look at the attacks on civilians, the attacks on infrastructure, and this very much fits into something that you've been talking about now since we first spoke in February, which is Russia's attacks on civilians. This is these are these are purposeful attacks on the population of Ukraine. This is not a war being fought between soldiers. Yes, but Russia uses war crimes as a method of warfare, and this is a clear tactics. They try to suppress the resistance and occupy the country by the tool which I call the immense pain of civilian population. That's why they provided a lot of suffering to Ukrainian civilians. And now we're reaching the point when Russians are publicly discussed on their TV how better to destroy critical civil infrastructure and to make millions of Ukrainians freezing during the winter. Each hit on civil object is a war crimes. Yeah, and you've pointed out that Russia's done this in other countries and never had to pay for it, and that's part of the problem. Yes, it's culture of impunity. Russia enjoyed for decades uh, impunity when they committed war crimes in Chechnya, in Moldova, in Georgia, in Mali, in Syria, in Libya, and they have never been punished for this. That's why when we as Ukrainians now promote injustice and try to convince the civilized world that this is a time to end the circle of impunity. We are fighting not only for ourselves, we are fighting for past victims and for and trying to prevent a new victims in new countries to emerge. 
Tell me about the Nobel Peace Prize, because I remember waking up that morning and looking at the groups that had won and realized that one of them was yours, that it was quite, we had spoken before, it was quite remarkable. Were you, were you, were you surprised? Yes, I was hugely surprised because uh, like uh, Nobel Prize award, it's something which you never expected when you speak about it, something which is far from a way of you and only celebrities can achieve uh, this uh, this award. Also, um, it was very unpredictable because one week and a half, I received alternative Nobel Peace Prize. That's right. I, like I have no idea that our team and Center for Civil Liberties can receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Did it? Because um, I know that the work that you do, the work that your team does, is not glamorous work. It involves going to places like Bucha, documenting crimes. It's difficult, difficult work. Did you feel like it was at least recognition of all the hours you put in trying to hear, make your voices and your cases heard? We have to be uh, very clear. It's a Nobel Peace Prize during the war and during the very bloody war when millions of people are suffering. So it's not like recognition, it's responsibility. This Nobel Peace Prize provides us a unique opportunity to make our waste tangible and we will use this opportunity. Yeah, how, how would you like to do that? I mean, I know what you've been trying to do is document the many the many crimes committed on Ukrainian soil by Russian troops, um, as well as, you know, missiles being fired on the country. But it feels like the work that you documenting, it must be almost an insurmountable task. Now there's so much to document. We faced with unprecedented amount of war crimes and our national legal system is overloaded. International criminal court uh, and their in- investigation is very essential, but court will limit itself only to several select cases. So ask, I asked myself, who will provide justice for hundreds of thousands of victims of war crimes who will not be lucky to be selected by International Criminal Court? And this is a question on which our team are working for current moment, because we need to, to fill this accountability gap. Uh, we need to provide an opportunity to each person who was suffered from war crimes, a chance for justice, because war turned people into numbers and only justice returned people name. That's why we promote the idea of creation of international hybrid tribunal on war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, because it's a time to hold Putin, Lukashenko and other war criminals accountable. So what we need to see is something like a Nuremberg, something along those lines, an international independent Um, tribunal to try more than the system in Ukraine or the International Criminal Court is capable of trying? We must go further. What do I mean? Because when I spoke with politicians, with diplomats, with uh, officials from different countries, they're still in mindset of Nuremberg trials. Hmm. And what is it Nuremberg trials? It's trials where Nazi war criminals were tried after Nazi regime had collapsed. It was in the past century and it was a very essential step uh, to establish law and justice. But we live in new century and justice must be independent from the magnitude of Putin regime. We cannot wait. We have to establish international tribunal now and start all preparation to hold Putin, Lukashenko and other criminals accountable. 
When you look at the possibility, can, can there be peace without justice? I guess is the is the, is the you know when we look to the future, one day this war will come to an end, right? It will, but those who've lived through it will, will suffer for it for a long time. And one looks at it and thinks, can there be peace without justice? No, it's impossible uh, because for decades Russia uses war as a method how to achieve their geopolitical interest. And Russia uses war crimes to win this war. So it will not stop this culture of impunity. It will repeat it. And that's why when we promote justice and we say that justice is essential, we are fighting for peace not only in Ukraine, but in the whole our region. A very important point, this war has a very distinct value dimension. And Putin tried to convince not only Ukrainians, but the whole world, that rule of law, democracy, and human rights are fake values because they couldn't protect you during the war. So in order to be honestly answered to this question, we have to show justice. And then we will be able to say, yes, it was a period of temporal law disorder when the whole international system of peace and security lay in ruin and couldn't stop Russian atrocities for years and after large-scale invasion for months. But we fix it, and we hold perpetrators accountable, because justice is essential, and rule of law is working. Because you've been documenting this long before February. You were documenting war crimes back to 2014. This war started not in February 2022, but in February 2014. And Center for Civil Liberties was the first human rights organization who sent mobile groups to document war crime in Crimea, in Donetsk and Luhansk region. And for all these eight years, we recorded horrible stories. We recorded human pain. I personally spoke with more than hundreds of people who survived Russian captivity. And they told me how they were beaten, how they were raped, how they were tortured with electricity, how their fingers were cut, and other horrible methods right. of tortures. Well, Alexandra, I was thinking back to, to Maidan, because uh, I was there many years ago now. Um, when you look back at those days, it, it has been an incredible journey for Ukraine over the last nearly a decade now. Do you feel like it's all been worth it, even though you've had to live through some very, very difficult times? We all know for what we are fighting for in this war. We are fighting for freedom in all senses, and freedom is forces. We are fighting for freedom to be an independent country, not Russian colony. We are fighting for freedom to be Ukrainians and to have a chance to develop our culture and our language. We are fighting for freedom to have our democratic choice, like a right to build a country where justice is independent, government is accountable, rights of everybody are protected. And police don't kill independent journalists. You've been traveling a lot of late. Um, do you feel like your message is being heard elsewhere? I must admit that this call for justice is very universal and have no limitation in state borders. Because when you tell about horrible stories which were recorded, this pain is very understandable regardless of citizenship, regardless of age, of sex, of, of ideology, of religion. It's a very universal thing, and proper response to these war crimes is also very universal. That's why it's not only our 
like demand of Center for Civil Liberties and not demand only of Ukrainian civil society and Ukrainians at all uh, in general. It's it's a very common demand of a lot of people in the world. And so, Alexandra, you and your team will continue your work through the power outages and the heating outages and so on. You're, you're, everyone is 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 still committed and and uh, eager to, to get what needs to be done, regardless of how uncomfortable it may be right now. It's a tough time, uh, but okay. I I I always try to find something positive. One very important positive things which we as Ukrainians obtained during this experience to live in total uncertainty is very high level of adaptivity. Because when you couldn't plan even your next hours, you have very to be very creative to make things done. And now we obtain a new skills, which is very valid in, in, in our modern world. It's certainly Alexander Matvichuk. Uh, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you.